Welcome back to another episode of the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, Addis JB3. And this week, we are talking about the linkage between racism and mental health. And so you, we've talked quite frequently about the relationship between racism and other health outcomes, specifically physical health. But what happens when we start talking about the stress associated with discrimination? And what we learn is that discrimination on the basis of race can cause or, or really worsen existing mental health conditions. I, I think it makes even accessing effective treatment more difficult. And so it's important as we're policymakers and individuals who create programs to consider the ways that the various forms of oppression can actually impact one's ability to ex access the services that we are trying to provide. You know, we could be talking as simple, and I, I hate to minimize it as simple, but talking about microaggressions, or we could be talking about implicit bias um, from your provider, or we could be talking about the impacts of institutional racism that's created policies that marginalize individuals. And all of these things interacting at one time can definitely have its, its fair share of weight on one's health. I think about just the, the variety of even like the short-term effects and how that lasts with the body. You think about discrimination or matter of fact, I think about January, January 6th as a really good example of what I witnessed and how I felt afterwards. You know, I realized like my, my own heartbeat that I couldn't get under control or the, or the tension that I felt as I'm clenching my jaws and holding my fist like the Arthur meme and just the this feeling of this constant need for survival. And because white supremacy and racism are these things that contribute to this ongoing source of stress, it's going to impact people of color throughout their lifespan. And so not to defer from the the presenter today, but I wanted to really set the stage that some of these impacts that racism has will impact a person's quality of life and even add to additional stress. And so today we're going to hear from Lauren Relaford. She is a fellow social worker in the field. She's also the political director over at Sojourners. And I was able to listen to Lauren at a conference. I can't remember which one, but being able to hear her talk about the principles of Ubuntu and the ways that we can use existing um, interventions to expand the way that we support individuals i knew that was someone that i wanted to get on the podcast and when we started talking about what the episode would be about and talking about this linkage i knew that it was a perfect fit so lauren would love to have you introduce yourself to the listeners let them know a little bit about you where you're from what do you do Sure. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Lauren Whitney Relaford. I am a uh, DMV native. So shout out to all those folks in the DMV area who are listening. Um, I am currently back in the DMV. I'm getting my master of social work at the National Catholic School of Social Service. So that's Catholic University in DC. Um, but I actually got my bachelor's in uh, political science at Boston College. Uh, way back in the day, at least for me. Um, and so I have actually used my time here at NC Trip um, to combine sort of my love for population health and policy with social welfare and social policy. So my concentration is actually clinical social work um, and what I call social political science, but it would just say social change, boring old social change. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> on my um, degree. And um, I've really actually used these past three years while I um, was in my program to really understand um human behavior, kind of what it actually means from a social work perspective, um, how it plays into short and outcome, um, short and long-term outcomes uh, when it comes to well-being and prosperity, and then sort of what our social system is or is not doing um, to really promote 
um, that sanctity and dignity of life. Um, and so it's been great because I've taken classes on, you know, attachment theory and neurobiology and, um, you know, psychodynamic theory and social change. But then I've also taken advanced policy analysis and international social work. So I feel like I've really done this mixed methods approach. And that's really what I'm hoping to do with social work. Um, and I think that's what we'll talk about in a little bit is just this I, this notion of mental health um, and marrying that with social work practice. I didn't even know social workers did mental health. It was just through my own mental health journey that I came across one. Um, and so I, I figured that, um, you know, mental health policy um, is something that needs to be addressed drastically in this country. We just mishandle mental and behavioral health care. Um, by leaps and bounds and do that within a social work frame, social work framework, just because I like the values approach. So I think I probably gave a little longer elevator speech on myself, but um, I think that that's just sort of like a basic, hello everyone, how are you doing of, of, of myself? So Lauren, let's just go right at it, right? What is the link between racism and mental health? So actually, before I kind of begin, and I really like to do this, um, I just like to table set the conversation with some definitions. Um, and these are things that I may or may not just throw out. I Well, actually, I know I will be throwing them out there um, throughout the course of our conversation. So I wanted to first start off with um, understanding integrated care. Um, and integrated care is actually a general term for fully or partially blended behavioral health services uh, with general and or specialty medical services. Um, so that means essentially you're taking from a social work perspective, you're taking social workers and embedding them in, uh, you know, primary care facilities, specialty medical care. So oncology units, you know, OBGYN units. Um, you're also making sure they're in dialysis clinics and, and ambulatory settings. Um, and the goal is to improve patient outcomes and satisfaction at lower cost, this triple blend by approaching whole health care. So this is a theme that we'll really see emerge um, as we go along, but integrated, integrated care um, is going to be really huge for addressing um, racism and mental health. Um, another term that I really want people to become familiar with is this um, term population health. So I think some people have definitely used it. I know it's very popular in the global health arena, but I think population health um, gets more to what social work does at a research education policy and practice level. And it's approach that focuses more on large scale health improvement and equity within neighborhood, city, county, or region. So it's again, looking at family systems, it's looking at meso level social work um, and finding ways in which those can support individual health. Um, it focuses on multiple determinants of health, like social determinants of health. Um, so it's not just, again, looking at traditional public health outcomes, like how is the heart, how are the lungs in this separate lens? And, you know, they send them out of the office. It's okay. But, you know, if a person is, for example, suffering from obesity, you know, are we treating this within our office, but then they go back to a place where there's a food desert where, you know, there's really no access to, you know, affordable, high quality, um, healthy foods, those kinds of things. Um, and then social determinants of health uh, is my big one. Um, so social determinants of health uh, describes conditions in the environment that people of, that people live, work and play in, um, you know, that affect their functioning, their health and their quality of life and outcomes. Um, when I say conditions in this term, um, that really refers to social, economic, um, physical and biological conditions, spiritual conditions. So um, really thinking about how the individual um, engages with their family, their community, their physical and spiritual environment, and so on and so forth. Um, and then that environment is exactly what I said. So um, those are just some big terms. I don't, before I go into now why racism is such a killer, I don't know if you had any questions about those um, or anything you think the audience might want um, So might fact, know. Um, let's see, what is this, 2021? So about a decade ago, I actually interned at our local community mental health authority. Oh. Integrated care at that time looked, I'm not sure how far along they've come, but we were really big on the four quadrant, that clinical integration model. Mm -hmm. And so I remember very well going to a house of representative, um, one of their offices describing this model and why we needed to actually bring together physical and they, they use behavioral health as the term, bringing together behavioral health and physical health for the purposes of like this whole health experience. 
And it's amazing that we haven't seen an uptick in that. Like, mm. I think, I don't want to jump ahead, but one of the challenges is the funding mechanisms, right? Like who's yeah. going to reimburse which thing for which provider? Yeah. And it's, it's a fun topic. So I'm excited to, to dive into it. I don't want to steal any yeah. thunder. Yeah, no, me and integrated care are like, that is my boo. I, but I, I will say that um, I do want to recognize the fact that there are a lot of nuances and challenges, not only to, you know, designing and developing an integrated care model, um, but then implementing it and thinking about sort of long-term human behavioral aspects of it. So, okay, so we have all the pieces on the team. Actually, I have a really good example. It's like my beloved Washington football team, right? We have an owner who just thinks that you can throw, you know, a multi-million dollar contract at someone that had a really good season into the mix and the whole team now, you know, the Washington football team is going to have a great season. And time and time again, we saw that failed with Adam Archuleta, like with, you know, Deion Sanders. So it's really like, you really have to, when you think about integrated care, you also have to create, you know, the infrastructure um, and those mechanisms to, to create chemistry amongst the team. So um, I'm super excited to talk about it. I think, um, there's a lot of avenues to go, but to your point, um, I think some of those more subtle nuances that aren't necessarily teased out in policy are what is preventing integrated care from really just taking off and becoming the new care continu continuum. But um, yeah, so <laughs> sorry, I could talk. I, I know I'm talking a lot. I could probably talk like forever about this stuff. So let's uh, let's roll this beautiful bean footage and talk about why um, racism kills. Um, and I, I think I want to, I want to make it very clear when I say that, that I'm not being hyperbolic. Um, this is something that I have always believed, obviously from as a lived experience as, as being a black woman, especially the fact that I have been in so many predominantly white spaces in my entire life. Um, I'm surprised that, you know, I'm not I'm not dead. And again, that's, that's very intense. But when I think about all the traumas that I've endured um, through sort of a, a racist society, it certainly has aged me. Um, and then now that I have this, you know, education, this whole, you know, research background that is still very young, it's, you know, it's very new, but I'm really seeing how racism, you know, the, you know, scientific evidence that shows that it slowly chips away at our physical and mental health. And really, every time we are exposed to someone else's ignorant racist mess, like we as Black people, and I would say all populations that are minoritized, shout out to Janelle Cubbage. Shout out um, to Janelle Cubbage. <laughs> shout out. We age and increase our risk for premature death. So this is sort of like, it's bad enough that we, we experience racism and none of us really want to deal with it, but we then become accountable for someone else's ignorant mess. And that is one of my biggest pet peeves. So I think that's also why this is a topic that gets to me is because it's like, so you mean I have to suffer the consequences because someone else is ignorant and jealous. It's just really not fair. Um, and I'm actually going to get into this, but one of the things that I had sort of kind of heard about before I started social work, um, just being in the public health space and doing some maternal, newborn and child health, but really getting into it lately as they focused um, primarily on black maternal health and um, you know black maternal, newborn and child health policy in the United States was this term um, called weathering. So it was actually coined by uh, Dr. Arlene Geronimos in 1992. Um, and it describes the process and progress of racism, racism's impact on black and brown people. So, you know, finally, basically, she's giving language to an experience. And I think that that is so critical. Um, she actually initially conceptualized her weathering concept or weathering hypothesis uh, while she was studying trends on women fertility and discovered that Black American women had significantly younger slash earlier, quote unquote, prime childbearing years as their white counterparts. So that basically means that she was looking at sort of, you know, fertility trends and birth outcomes for black women and white women and saw that white women had prime very you know prime childbearing ages that time period was not only longer but it was significantly older than black women um, she found that the average white woman between the ages of 20 and into her early 30s so we'll say 34, 35 um, was the most fertile and at the lowest risk for unhealthy pregnancies and neonatal 
mortality. So not only were white women having healthier pregnancies between the ages of 20 and about 34, but their, you know, their infant, their neonatal outcomes were much higher. So they experienced less, um, you know, less neonatal death. And then they also found that, um, you know, neonates tended to have better birth weights and were just overall healthier than babies that were born to black women. Um, So I just thought that that was, that in and of itself was like, well, damn, okay. So what next happens for black women? Um, She actually found, and this is in 1992 and her research, she found that black women on the other hand were more likely to have a healthy pregnancy with low neonatal um, mortality risk in their late teens than they're in their mid twenties. So if you think about it, that means that, you know, late teens, what is that? 16, 17, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19, is the prime optimal age for a black woman to have a, a child. First of all, that's what, three, four years that you really have the op- this optimal window of fertility and health for your neonate. Um, but that is, for me, at least substantially different. Um, it's a stark difference. And I actually don't have the words to just describe what, um, what looking at that initially did. And so I don't know if like you had any thoughts about it, like what, it was, <laughs> like if you had the same reaction as I did, or if maybe I'm just tripping because um, that has such like, for me, that has, I think it just has such direct consequences for my own health, especially as a woman and thinking about my fertility. So it's not just like, okay, you know, racism is bad for me overall, but it's racism, especially bad for me and my baby. Yeah. Yeah. There's, a lot of my research, I think I've mentioned before, is around implicit bias. And mm-hmm. those who know me well know I struggle with the term, right? Like it's it's an ism, right? It's it it's racism, it's classism, it's sexism. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. nailed in a way that I feel is is uh, comforting. It, it allows people to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so when we consider some of these maternal and infant health outcomes and we factor in racism and we factor in the facts that women even in filling out the forms or interacting with the uh, receptionist at the front desk and saying, you know, is the baby's father going to be there as opposed to asking, is the husband going to be there? Or Mm -hmm. how many partners have you had when you wouldn't ask that to someone else? And so Mm -hmm. preconceived notions that play a role in one's entire healthcare experience. And we just kind of, we kind of just shrug it off, right? Like, oh, that's, that's just what it is. But it lives with us and it, it latches on and it impacts. Yeah. Us. Yeah. It's just, it's, oof, you just like gave me chills. Right. It just reminds me. I mean, and that those kind of questions just persist. I remember when I was in seventh grade and I was over at a quote unquote friend's house and her father, my mom dropped me off and her father was like, um, and mind you at this point, this Mel, he was much older and he was like well into his sixties, regardless, he was a grown man. He didn't have no business asking me this question. He was like, was well, your dad in your life? I just saw your mom drop you off. Sir, what? And I made the mistake, fatal mistake of being like, well, my parents are divorced. Oh, so your mom was married. Yeah, bro. Like, why are you asking me these questions? Why are you so invested in that? Right. And, you know, it's, um, we're going to get into it, but it's like that kind of stuff that I don't think people realize like really weighs on you. And even, you know, in seventh grade, you know, I was 12 years old. Um, I think about how I felt then. And I have very similar like somatic symptoms. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm going to again, get into a little bit of like why that's happening, but racism really, it like leaves an imprint on you. It's a trauma. And just like we know about trauma, yes, you can go through therapy and yes, you know, you can certainly help and heal trauma victims. I am a personal testament to that, but some of that stuff, there's just some stuff you can't take back. I think that that's a lot of, you know, our mom has t- told us that like, there's just some stuff you can't take back. So be careful. And when it comes to racism, like there's just some stuff you can't take back. Like you cannot take back what you've done to me. You cannot take back what you've said. You cannot take back how you've made me feel. And not only can you not take it back, but you have taken years off of my life. You have endangered my child, um, you know, my future children. And you have put me in a position where I have to make life decisions around fertility and birth and working and all of these other things about adulthood in a different way than a white woman does, or even a Hispanic woman does. So yes, racism does matter. Racism does kill. Racism is a legit thing. And so, you know, I, I wish we had 
language that really got to the heart of that because when we give our lived experiences um, or even when we see, you know, the kinds of things that happen on camera, like today's shooting, you know, people still find a way to reason out with it. And so just to get back to the science, my hope is that, you know, it's a very unfortunate, but some people are only going to, and we even know not even then do they care, but some people only really care about the numbers. Um, and so how do we make the numbers support our narrative? Um, you know, this, this narrative of racism and trauma that we have endured. Um, and so, yeah, so that's, I, I just kind of went off on a tangent. <laughs> so I apologize about that, but it's very striking. Um, and this stuff really gets to me. It, it really does. Um, because even if I am unable to have a child, you know, that um, I still want other women to be able to have, or, you know, just other black people to be able to live the lives that God intended us to have without, you know, having to deal with racism and having to deal with the fact that this shortens our lifespan. Like that's really unfair and it's a social justice issue. So let's, let's talk about some specific examples then, right? About how racism and mental health, mental health interact with each other. Can you describe a few? I know we've talked a little bit about microaggressions in this regard, but are there other blatant examples? Sure. So I would say, actually, I may even go just deeper. I may just drop some like neurobiology here. But um, so there is this theory. I can't believe I said that. That's like the nerdiest thing ever. Like, oh, I'm going to drop some neurobiology on you. <laughs> but um, so there's is actually I think neurobiology really is key because we can give examples. And I feel like we've been giving examples like until the cows come home. But maybe we need to give a different kind of example that isn't just like, these are what microaggressions are, you know what I mean? And so I really want to talk about um, this thing called polyvagal theory. Um, hold on to your horses. I'm going to try to do my best to explain this um, as simple, like as simply as possible. So let's give an example. So let's say I was at work once and um, I overheard some colleagues we were going to order some food and they were talking about quiche for breakfast. And I overheard a colleague say, um, well, do black people even eat quiche? Which wow. yeah, homie it's, yeah, it's cheese, eggs, and you sprinkle a little bacon on there. Absolutely. I'm eating that. Um, and so what happens when you have, even something as simple as that, right? It wasn't directed at me. It was just general <laughs> racism. You have a whole nervous system that primes up and gets ready to respond um, because it is assessing that racism as a danger. It's assessing that racism as a threat in part because we have this history of knowing, oh, once racism pops off, something negative is going to happen. And so your brain starts to act in a hyper or hypo aroused way that increases your heart rate or decreases your heart rate. So you actually start to feel um, what you're thinking. You actually start to feel. And then you have your fight or flight or um you know, your freeze or submit response come out. In that case, my response was to freeze because it just was so overwhelming that it was like so overwhelmingly stupid, but also so overwhelmingly cruel in its own kind of way that I just didn't know how to react. And then you just sort of dissociate. And for the rest of the day, like I really didn't, I didn't talk to anyone. I just kind of kept to myself. I was already feeling really isolated in that environment. And so I noticed my mental health started to become impacted. I became really anxious about coming to work. I noticed that my stomach really hurt. I was having really bad stomach pains, which polyvagal theory um, says is, uh, you know, that's part of the reason why that happens is the part of the nervous system that's activated when you encounter, you know, a racist incident or an incident that you have internalized as racist, the nervous system um, and the part of the brain that is directly engaged in sort of your gastrointestinal functions either gets hyper or hyper or hypo aroused. And so you either get like a really bad stomach ache or you get stomach pains or you just get gas because you're over digesting, not digesting. It just throws you off. Um, so that's sort of like a biological point of view. I would also say that racism impacts your mental health because it completely 
completely has the power to destroy your sense of authentic and true self because it's it's this construct it's this identity that this preconceived notions of who you are who you should be and how you should be how you need to interact with your environment that's completely alien to your real sense of self and so you essentially have you know black and brown people going around just taking these racist punches taking these racist punches we're not allowed to really express ourselves in any way shape or form that's healthy um, because it's either deemed you know aggressive or angry um, you know it's, it's a lot of negative associations and then we also have this sort of poor history of you know with mental health systems and we can get into that uh, much later but um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, you know, you find a lot of folks who then sort of internalize racism in order to survive. So you start to act a certain way, um, you know, you, you avoid certain places, um, you avoid speaking a certain way, and that all becomes encoded in your mental system, like that all becomes a survival mechanism, but it's completely dysfunctional, it's completely unhealthy. Um, and it starts to impact your other systems because then you're just constantly under stress, right? Your mental, your, your right brain is just feeling all the time and your left brain is trying to, um, you know, break it all down and you're just disjointed. And so you find um, in a lot of, you know, and unfortunately the research really is in there because we know research in racism is, we've still got a long way to go. So I think it would be helpful if we consider some of the barriers, right? Like what are some of the structural barriers that prevent access to mental health care? Because it would be easy for someone to say, well, why don't folks just go see a therapist or why don't people have counselors? What's, yeah. what's getting in the way of that? Oh God. Well, um, I think you mentioned this earlier and I actually a huge like reimbursement uh, policy nerd, but the reimbursement paradigm for mental health services just is not there in the same way that it is for traditional public health services. So that's a huge part of the problem, right? So there's not a lot of, you know, people have to make money. And so if you as a healthcare provider are working within a payment paradigm that does not offer you you know, decent reimbursement, um, and then a lot of your services aren't covered, that one is um, uh, disincentivizing people from getting into the profession. And then two, it's a disincentive for folks to actually be able to access services because they know that they're going to have to be paying so much out of pocket money that they don't have. And especially if they're coming in and some of those social determinants of health, like finances and education and economic stability and so on and so forth are coming into play, then they're not going to have a hundred, two hundred dollars for a 30 minute session, uh, you know, with a healthcare provider. Let's, let's talk about stigma, right? Like as part of that, I know often, and I hate this narrative now that they say like in black communities, we don't talk about depression. We don't talk about anxiety. We just drink some water. We go to church and call it good. How have you seen that play out as a barrier to care? Sure. So that is actually, um, I think it's a barrier to care, but it's a misunderstood barrier to care, if that makes any sense. Because I, I feel like when people make those statements, like, well, black people just don't see care. It's, there's a lot of blaming, right? And yes, of course they aren't seeing care, but I think the question is why? Um, and at least from my research and I think my perspective, uh, I think a lot of that, again, is just sort of the cultural trends, the way that we have been enculturated as black people in America to not express our emotions. One, just being taught that expression of emotion can be dangerous for your health, um, dangerous for your life. And then two, we just don't have really the space um, to ever just decompress. Like even now, think about an incident um, that has happened recently or personally to you that was just very like heavy in terms of racism. Did you have the automatic space to decontextualize that, to like process it and then go to other folks and process that with them? Or did you really find that you just kind of had to keep it in and find a way, you know, eventually to sort of let it out? Oh, you're talking about like right now. Like yeah. What I'm sitting with right now. Yeah. So the closest to that is the conversation we're having right now. Right. Mm -hmm. In most instances, it is rare. You know, I do have a, a pretty strong 
um, support system, which is a blessing in itself. Mm -hmm. I realize there's many folks who look like me who don't. Mm -hmm. But on like the day-to-day nine to five experience of just institutionalized racism, interpersonal racism, there there's none of that. I mean, you, you put it in your pocket, you keep going. Yeah. And I think that that's sort of like, I don't know if you've ever, if that, if this term was ever said to you growing up, but you just got to keep your head down and just keep going. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that it's, it's very much like it's, again, it's just a survival mechanism and it's not like mental health care was really available to, you know, black and brown people, um, you know, back, back, quote unquote, back in the day. And even when it was available, you know, a lot of those persistent, um, you know, nefarious medical histories still existed. I was actually reading an article the other day just about how racism showed up in the mental health care system. And so it's like, you think about, um, you think about all these exposés about, you know, state mental health facilities and you saw the folks that were there. Now, you know, you know, those facilities were bad. Now you bring in, you know, a black, you know, a black or brown individual and all of those social determinants, you know, all of those social constructs of race uh, become a part of it again. And so I think that some of this quote unquote resistance, which really isn't a resistance to mental health comes just from a history of, of distrust of the medical system and being abused by the medical system. I think it's just a historical lack of access. I think it is also, um, you know, you think about the incentives for, you know, from an individual perspective to become a provider, you think about social work, for example, if you wanted to become a mental health provider as a social worker, um, and you came from a background that, you know, you didn't have, you know, the money to support yourself, and you would have to work full time, or it just was going to be like a difficult load to do, you're already coming in at a financial disadvantage. Um, because it's something that you really want to do. You want to help out folks, but you don't know how to cover the cost. Okay, so great. You do get the cost. Then you have to do your field internship, which is, you know, unpaid on top of all of these, you know, all of your other scholarly requirements. And then you're there for, what, two, three, four, five years max, and you're losing money that entire time. So by the time you graduate, by the time you get to the place where you have your license, which you have to pay like six or $700 to take the test and pray that you, you know, pray that you, you pass and you don't fail and you have to don't pay, you know, another four or $500 by that time, you, you know, you've gone for broke and then you go into a system where you know that they're not going to pay you for your work. So, you know, I, I know that that must be a huge disincentive for a lot of providers. These are like very specific examples, I think, um, of a much broader issue, but these are just some of the things that I think about. I think we really need to um, think about increasing the supports we have for, um, you know, mental health workers, both just like from a financial perspective and then also making sure that we take care of our mental health providers. I think every therapist should have a therapist um, because the work is really heavy and the work brings up a lot of your own stuff. And so how do you have, you know, how do you have that space to be able to go back to someone and process that? So that way you could be good for your patients. Um, and I really think that, um, you know, we need to stop making cuts more at like the, you know, at a funding level, especially in our state and local health departments, but at the federal level to, you know, the types of, you know, programs and policies that would actually create a much better mental health infrastructure that would support not just patients, but also providers. But those are some of the things that I, like some of the more concrete examples and barriers that I can think of. Um, But there are a myriad of reasons why there are barriers to this. I also think that, when it comes to trying to make connections with the black community and mental health, um, the approach is just really wrong. Um, I think there is, or at least in my experience, um, there's a huge spiritual element that, um, you know, black communities have, and there's this tie to the church. And I think, you know, a lot of individuals really understand themselves through, you know, different lenses. And so there needs to be more concerted and culturally appropriate or culturally thoughtful ways of creating access um, to mental health services that don't necessarily require an individual to walk into like this very dour and dire, you know, you know, just stark building with someone who probably doesn't look like them and who has their own, you know, (laughs) implicit biases going on um, and making that, you know, 
how do we make that actually more comfortable? So that way we stop thinking like, oh, black people don't get help. And we ask the question, okay, why aren't black people getting help? What are those barriers? Just like you said, and how do we create an environment that actually fosters and facilitates access that is, you know, adequate and high quality um, and culturally appropriate? You covered a lot. I mean, I know you keep saying that, but, and that's my problem is I feel like I cover a lot. Um, but it's just, it's because there's so much. And I think it's just, it's sometimes it is hard to get your mind around it. If that makes any sense. No, that makes, that makes perfect sense. I mean, when I walk into a room and talk about addressing institutional racism, people look at me like I'm crazy. Right. Mm -hmm. Like how, how are we going to tackle something so big? I mean, you have to start somewhere. Yeah. And And I, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, and that doesn't mean we have to try to change the entire system overnight though we would love to yeah we need to change part of the system to start making broader changes as a whole yeah and, and you know what i was so what i was getting ready to say was i think that's part of the reason why i've really focused on um and i really sort of started off with talking about um you know maternal health and weathering because that to me at least is sort of the niche or the area in which i can chip away at the big problem you know the big problem big you know big p-r-o-b-l-e-m is racism but i think and this is something you kind of said earlier it's like okay racism but like there's so many other adjectives there's so many different contexts in which racism plays out that you then really have to take the time to be like okay racism what is racism you know socioeconomic racism what is educational you know all of the different types of racism and then go through and so it's a process and so i feel like at least with black maternal health um i think addressing you know, looking at policies that um, include maternal, uh, sorry, mental and behavioral health um, as part of an integrated healthcare approach um, is a good way to intervene and treat, uh, you know, Black women who have experienced undue trauma, racial trauma, complex trauma, you know, all of the all of the things who may have mental health, you know, challenges that have been untreated or misdiagnosed to get them at such a vital point in their lives, as well as the lives of a new individual, help get them on their healing journey while also potentially intervening and preventing, um, you know, the generational transmission of trauma and mental and behavioral health conditions onto an infant. Um, And so I think that, you know, the one thing that I would say is, you know, I, I go so high and sometimes I cover so much because I'm trying to be inclusive of all of the work that people are doing, right? I'm just one person and this is just what I know, but, and this is reflected on the fact that you have tons of episodes with all different kinds of providers with all different kinds of interest. I think the goal would be for us to keep our eye on the prize and find a way to connect the various pieces together. So that way, ultimately, you know, we're moving forward towards addressing racism and how it just impacts life um, as a collective, as opposed to sort of these little different silos. Um, So, yeah. Now that's a whole model in itself, right? Like we can see the bigger picture and we're all working together to address it. I mean, it, it sounds like at its core collective impact, but if we all took that, perspective as providers like we have as you you called it out the big problem of racism let's start by addressing it as implicit bias over in behavioral health and let's also Mm -hmm. talk about it as work requirements and medicaid like it's we can all play a part in addressing our very specific issues to start chopping away at the big problem of racism yeah well, I mean, and that's reflected. And again, I'm a policy girl, so, you know, I'm going to go there. But I think that's just reflected in all the different types of policies that um, address racism. Right. Like I was actually just checking my phone um, and I saw an email from Ayanna Presley. Um, oh, just hat tip. If you were ever really interested in getting engaged, like civic engagement, find a member of Congress that is, you know, doing an issue that you really love or someone who you feel like is actually doing the work and follow them, get their emails because they'll, you know, update you on what's going on. But I just got an email from um, Ayanna Presley 
not her personally, I wish, but um, <laughs> it's um, it, the title was Systemic Racism is a Public Health Crisis. And she's talking about a bill that she is introducing with uh, Representative Barbara Lee, a Democrat from California, and Senator Elizabeth Warren, a Democrat out of um, Massachusetts, called the Anti-Racism and Public Health Act of 2021. So it's you know, the, all of these efforts are here, but I think part of the problem, part of the reason why we're still here is because it's so, it's not integrated. Um, but I think that that's what's so fascinating about, just to go back to Arlene Geronimos' work, is the fact that, again, she came up with this hypothesis in 1992. And I was looking at a stat and the sharpest increase in citations for her work, um, especially her original work, came in 2020. And so I think it's there, like the evidence is there, you know, you know, neurobiology is, is, is showing that, yes, what Eileen Geronimos said is right. Yes, what Dr. Joy DeGruy said is right. You know, racism is having, you know, mental and physiological impacts on the health of black and brown, native and indigenous folks. Um, this is how it's happening. So hopefully the policies then um, that are being shaped and introduced and passed are much more reflective of that actual narrative that mixed methods like here's the quantitative and qualitative data now make sure that um you know we create something that's going to be much more responsive and much more appropriate than the approach that we currently have because it's it's abysmal um and you know it the research says that racism is 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 life and death this for a lot of us so um you know my hope is moving forward that uh you know, we continue to fund education and, and, and research. We continue to make sure that folks have access to this type of information that is being shared um, and that we just commit ourselves to moving that needle forward. Even if we don't, to your point, see it in our lifetime, I think we owe it to the ancestors to keep pushing. So the last question I want to ask is just based off of something that you just mentioned around narrative, right? Mm -hmm. And how do we shift the narrative and add to the discourse when it comes to racism and mental health? I mean, it feels like in many cases, there's two separate conversations going on, like the very like racism exists conversation. And it, there might be some health impacts as a result of racism. And then there's mm -hmm. the mental health conversation, which just goes on to say that your, your mental health can be impacted through a variety of factors, but may not call out racism explicitly? Mm -hmm. So this is a really good question. And I think it's, we kind of touched on it in terms of how fragmented the pipeline is. Um, I normally think of things from a bottom-up approach, especially when it comes to policy formation. So that would be taking our clinical knowledge and then you know implementing it at the meso level um, and then scaling up at the national level. Um, I think you kind of have to look at sort of your national organizations um, and their connections they have sort of at the state and local level to be able to bring that data and those narratives forward. Because like I said, the work is being done. It's just a matter of dissemination. And so you see a lot of sort of the quote unquote major players, um, you know, the American Public Health Association, uh, you know, the American, you know, um, you know, APA, um, you know, Nurses Association, American Heart Association that are starting to recognize this. And I think it's really important for, um, for us, you know, that are doing the work to sort of collect those endorsements and to be able to, to, to sort of use them as tools and resources when we go and meet with folks or when we talk and say, okay, well, you know, not only am I saying this, not only am I presenting the research, but look at this growing body of supporters who are considered quote unquote legitimate in the field um, who are also substantiating this. So I, I, I would say that um, um, we need to find those individuals who have been considered power players in the space of, you know, mental health, public health, um, public health policy, public health messaging, who um, are starting to make those connections and engage with them. So that way, when, as they are trying to reshape or, you know, create this narrative that links racism and mental health, it is coming from that patient and provider perspective. It is coming from that indigenous native voice. And it's not just, you know, sort of lip service, like hopping on the bandwagon. So I would say that um, maybe the role that we have as a community is to organize ourselves 
um, figure out who's doing the work, create, you know, create our own, you know, network of individuals, and then go to these institutions um, and comment. I don't want to say challenge, but you know, enlighten them or provide additional context to the things that they're already saying, because they're catching up. It's just a matter of whether or not they're going to catch up with us. And by us, I mean, again, that mental health community, the social work community, you know, the different Black communities, the provider community, the research community, um, because they're creating the table. Uh, you know, are we going to either, um, you know, bring our seat to that table or are we going to create our, our own table? And I think that that's what we really have to figure out. But um, it's, it's, I think we can also just do some own personal work. Um, you know, for me, I, 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 in my own mental health journey, I have taken the time to really talk to folks that were close to me about what it meant to see them go through my experience. And in those conversations, I have been able to really connect with folks in a different way because we're looking at the human experience. We're looking at racism and mental health um, in a much different way, how it's impacted me. Um, even, you know, and I, I have been able to have a few conversations with, you know, non-Black uh, people of color, uh, as well as just non-Black people in general about what racism um, and how it's impacted my mental health. And I've taken real world examples, like the quiche example, and talked about like all of the physiological impacts and how it impacted my mental health, just as like one, you know, little slice. But I've, you know, I, I think it's really been enlightening to certain folks. I think primarily folks that consider themselves to be allies when they understand just how deep that experience is, right? Because to a lot of people, again, they just hear racism and it's like, oh, someone called you the N-word or like, they don't understand that it's more than that, right? It's a, it's a soul wound. And yes, we may keep on going, but it is really tiring to constantly go through life having someone to tell you, you know, you're not black enough, or, you know, you're just the right kind of black, or, you know, you do this and you'll get killed. Um, and that takes a toll on all of us. And just because we are, you know, just because we smile and just because we are a people of joy and creativity and culture does not mean that we also don't hold deep pain and that we also are not very sensitive to the things that have happened to us and sensitive to our environments. And so, um, you know, I would say just trying to also on an individual level, be very open about your experiences um, and try to even do some of that work on your own. Think about things that you may have just brushed off, um, you know, and I'm not saying like invent some sort of narrative in your head. But what I'm saying is go back to those times. Where you just like it just didn't feel right. Right. Black people, I think that we are experts at knowing when something doesn't feel right. So when people are like, oh, are you sure it was racist? Yeah, bro, I am 100% sure it was racist because even if it didn't sound like it, it felt like it. And I, you know, you have that experience and, you know, doing that work, processing it on your own, at least for me, has been really helpful in undoing a lot of the racial damage that is then linked to my mental health. And I found myself just feeling safer and feeling stronger. And I think that that really is the enduring impact of racism on mental health. It's creating this lack of sense of safety and security. And we know already from a neurobiological standpoint that once the brain feels like it's, you know, insecure or it's not a safe position, you go into survival mode. So we just have a bunch of like, you know, black and brown Americans and really globally throughout the diaspora, any really anywhere we've been touched by white supremacy that are just constantly in this like reactive mental mode. And that manifests itself in, you know, health disparities and manifests itself in mental health. But then we're in a system that isn't, you know, we're in a system that's not really prepared for us and you know, we're misdiagnosed. We have texts that are really based off a baseline of understanding of sort of white normalcy or Western normalcy. Um, and I think, again, uh, maybe breaking that, you know, narrative when it comes to racism and mental health is doing small things like I've done, like write the papers in college, you know, um, create that evidence base, connect to the community. So that way um, we are in control of our own narrative it's not being narrated to us like it traditionally is. And I don't know if that really answered the question. Um, oh, I'm, I'm over here waving my church fan right now. 
you, oh, I mean, just uh, like some of it, you know, it just, it just asked that question, you know, I knew the answer ahead of time, but it just, it really like that brings up so much. And I just, it just, it really just aggravates me to no end. Um, but I think it just also highlights just how, how little or how far away from being an anti-racist society um, that we, you know, we could possibly be because if we were much closer to being anti-racist or being a safe space for black and brown people. And if we, our society actually provided that level of security, we would not be having to talk about like the current link between racism and mental health and what should we be doing? We would, it would be an afterthought. We would be talking about, this is the approach and this is how we solved it. And, you know, we'd be in our next iteration of, you know, mental health and racial reform. Um, but yet, you know, here it's, you know, Joy to Grew, 1992. Uh, that to me, that was a long time ago. I was alive certainly during that, but that feels like a long time ago. You know, she's, her research is just now, now getting a shine. Mm -hmm. um, and so th that is on, on one hand ridiculous, but on, on another hand, it's very encouraging um, because that means that people are at least starting to take it seriously and they're at least going to the sources. So I really hope to see a lot more of Dr. Joy DeGruy and Dr. Arlene Geronimos and the folks that, you know, um, I forget who wrote Medical Apartheid, but those folks that really have that historical knowledge to contextualize a lot of this, because I think that's what's missing as well, um, is sort of like the, the history behind racism and how it's played out. And I think that's another reason why um, the narrative is so disjointed. It's because you have this whole history of mental health um, that's got its own, you know, different silos and then you have your history of racism and they're trying to come together um, and people are trying to figure it out. Meanwhile, you know, folks like you and I were suffering. Um, so we, regardless of what happens, like something needs to happen. It needs to be addressed in a very thoughtful, authentic, real manner um, because <laughs> people are being misdiagnosed with schizophrenia. We're being institutionalized. We're, you know, being underdiagnosed for depression. We're being over-medicated. Um, and yet we're still suffering. So, so what's really good, right? That's really good. It might be the name of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> what's really good. <laughs> I mean, but that's just how it feels. It's like, you know, you keep saying things over and over again. And that's, that's also, it gets on your mental health. Like, why do I have to repeat myself? I know I sound like my mom, but it's like, why do I have to repeat myself? And even saying that is, is giving me like anxiety. So yeah, it's real. Racism is real. Y'all better stop playing with my health, man. <laughs> How do people keep up with you? I know you're also doing some consulting on the side and if they just need to learn more about this robust topic. I mean, there's so many pieces that we could talk about and different angles that we could take, but where can people go to learn more about you? Oh, yes. So I am all over the place. And that's just a function of like <laughs> rounding out this last week of school, but then it's also my general life. So I had to chortle a little bit to myself, like darn skippy. Um, but I am actually, um, I have, yes, started my own policy and advocacy consulting firm. It's still a baby, but it is called MYM Strategies. MYM stands for Moving Your Mountain. Um, it's a phrase that um, is very personal to me. It's in relation to the Bible verse, you know, even if you have a faith of the mustard seed, you can move your mountain. And I just really believe that um, the goal of being a social worker and being a voice is, is actually not to be a voice for other people, it's to be the vehicle for other people's voice. And so I really want to help through my policy and advocacy consulting, um, help folks move their mountains. Um, so that way, you know, they can get to that other side. So I am on Twitter at MYM Strategies. Um, you can also email me, my email address is lwrelaford at mymstrategies.com. Um, you can also hit me up on LinkedIn, I, <laughs> which sounds really silly, but LinkedIn's like really gotten pretty lit, maybe because we're all in the house, but I just feel like my LinkedIn has just really popped off in the last month and it's been really exciting. But um, I'm Lauren Whitney Relaford, Lauren Relaford on LinkedIn. Um, but yeah, feel free to hit me up. I'm always talking um, about something. Um, and I actually also... Um, yeah, I will have, if you're interested um, in more, I'm actually, uh, Catholic University is having a research day. 
I don't know, small plugs, you can you can take this out if you want, but um, I'm actually sort of presenting on some of this topic. Um, it looks at social work policy and the sanctity and dignity of life. Um, so I'm looking at sort of the impacts of stress. I mentioned weathering um, and then tie it to, um, you know, Catholic social teaching and social work values and a maternal health bill. So that video should be live on Thursday. So I think if you just Google Catholic University Research Day, Lauren Relaford, my video should pop up as well. You out here? Yo, everybody got to eat. I'm just trying to make sure I'm 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 getting a scrap. You know what I mean? I, <laughs> like, no, I you know I, I've seen you present, and I mean just the work that you do, the things that you bring up, also necessary. There there's things that you know we're not getting in our curriculums, we're not getting in our professional development, and so having somebody who can just come out and be like, "What's really good? We need that." Yeah. <laughs> Look, and I'll say it too. I, I need to work on my professional filter. I use the word, I use the term word vomit in a, in a professional meeting once. Um, and they were like, what? And I was like, you know, when you just keep speaking and you can't stop, it's like a vomit of words and they rocked with it. So I, you know, I certainly have my unique style, but I, I just really hope that, um, you know, I just see myself more as like a, a mediator because again, I'm talking about work that other folks have done, right? So, um, you know, that's that's just the beauty of it all. Is I'm I'm just you know trying to trying to bring that forth and bring that up, and um, you know I think that should just be the goal of everyone's work is just to elevate the voice of the voiceless um, and get them to the table or help them create their own. Because that's just that's that's the good work. That's the work that God God intended for us, and that's just how we are as people. I think I got to let you drop the mic there. I don't, I don't have anything else. Boom. Like I wish I had like a sound effect where it was like, you know, that do, 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 like the horns that they play on some, like the end of, I'm so corny. Don't worry about it. Um, I'll see what I can do when I'm editing it. Just be yes. extra in there. Yeah. But I hope this was okay. I was so nervous because I was like, oh my God. Like, I don't know. You honestly um, did it. I'm, I'm excited. Good. I also may send you a different headshot just because. I'm trying to judge things up a bit, but yeah, no, this was awesome. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I, I thank you so much for the work that you do. I think folks like you are really important. Um, one, just because I know that this takes a lot of work. Like this is a lot of time to do and you yourself are already doing so much. Good luck on Thursday. Um, but I think again, just facilitating authentic spaces for people to really talk about this, I think is going to be crucial for us actually making change moving forward. So thank you so much for doing for doing your part. Big, big, big thank you to Lauren for joining us on the Equity Matters podcast. I think what resonated most with me is just the collective ways that our systems are designed to impact us and then specifically how when we break it down even further, considering just the impacts to mothers, to women, to children, and so many other things that go unnoticed, I think it's just, as always, like every episode should have a call to action, but we should start thinking about the ways that the systems that we're a part of further marginalize and make it difficult for people to thrive and to be successful or even just to be healthy. So as you're walking away from this episode, make sure you're thinking about um, the ways that we can all do more and the ways that we can all do better to support those who have already been marginalized and disenfranchised in other ways. A few quick announcements before we wrap this thing up. So Equity Matters Social Justice Academy, November 16th, 7.30 p.m. Be there or be square. We We'll be releasing the video, I believe that's going to be this Saturday. So be on the lookout for that. If you're not following us on any of the social media handles, of course, I'm going to run those really quick. That's at Equity Matters Podcast on Instagram, at Equity Matters PC on Twitter. The video will be posted there, but also sign up for our listserv. You'll also receive it that way. You are able to register starting this upcoming Saturday. Please uh, check out the link, watch the video, 
hit us up if you have any questions because we've got answers and even before that we're going to do similar to last time where we do an instagram live beforehand just so you can see a a good sense of kind of what we want to talk about and just looking forward to it other announcements i feel like i don't have any this october has been a busy month and i'm glad that i was able to slow things down a bit i do have a special episode coming out on halloween um with the homie patrick harris we sat and talked all things horror and how horror goes perfectly with many of the social justice movements that we see currently uh really excited to share that it's a it's a change of pace but it it gave me the opportunity to talk about something that I use as as a form of self-care, sitting there watching movies all day, and then time gets to something that I'm passionate about in the work. So be on the lookout for that special Halloween episode. Aside from that, take care of yourselves, folks. Love to hear from you. Reach out to us if you've got any questions, concerns. If there are certain people you want to hear on the podcast, please connect us. We love building community. And until next time, Always remember, equity matters.